Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this CHEST Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your CHEST podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a compelling discussion on tracheostomy in patients with COVID-19. We are fortunate to have Dr. Jose de Cardenas and Dr. Carla Lamb as our guests. Dr. De Cardenas and his colleagues wrote the pro side of this point counterpoint in the May 2021 Chest Journal, Tracheostomy in Patients with COVID-19, Should We Do It Before 14 Days? Dr. De Cardenas is the Director of Interventional Pulmonology at the University of Michigan and is an Assistant Professor of Medicine and Thoracic Surgery. His research interests include early detection of lung cancer. Dr. Carla Lamb wrote the counterpoint on the same issue. Dr. Lamb is the Director of Interventional Pulmonology and the Director of the Interventional Pulmonology Fellowship at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington, Massachusetts. Her research interests include team building and tracheostomy care, simulation education in thoracic procedural training, and lung cancer screening and early detection. Early in the course of the pandemic, there was significant concern that performing tracheostomies early in the course of illness could increase viral transmission to healthcare workers. Now, Dr. De Cardenas, you argue that early tracheostomy can be done in select patients. Can you discuss some of the benefits of performing tracheostomy in COVID-19 patients who are requiring prolonged ventilation? Yes. Um, we do think that tracheostomy in selected patients, once um, there are signs of improvement and is able to tolerate the apnea test, could lead to a decrease of cumulative sedation dose, therefore allowing early participation in physical therapy and rehabilitation, and also decreasing the risk of critical illness, myopathy, and clots. Additionally, um, Early tracheostomy is also associated with early walking, talking, and eating, and early extubation lowers all the risks of airway complications that are inherent from prolonged translaryngeal intubation, such as focal tracheomalacia and tracheal stenosis. And Dr. Lamb, what is your opinion on the use of the early tracheostomy to decrease the risks associated with intubation that Dr. De Cardenas just mentioned? I think we have to consider a few things, and I, I will have to preface this with that in the literature, when we define early and late tracheostomy, there's wide variability. For the purpose of the counterpoint, counterpoint and point, um, it's been 14 days, either before or after 14 days. But I think the things we have to take into context is that laryngeal injury from endotracheal intubation can occur very early, even in the first 24 hours, and that while we certainly want to reduce the risk of tracheal stenosis, associated tracheal malacia. Tracheal, uh, tracheostomy placement is not without its own inherent risk as well in terms of airway wall injury, um, malposition of insertion, um, even tracheal granulation tissue and a variety of things that can ensue just with the placement of tracheostomy. So I think 
it just reminds us to be thoughtful about uh, the endeavor of placing a tracheostomy in patients. And I think that when we think a bit about uh, specifically for COVID patients, um, we don't know that data that's been um, published for non-COVID-related um, situations for intubation. We, we don't know if that data translates. I, I don't think we have that evidence, evidence to necessarily bear that out. And Dr. DeCardenas, you also write about the potential role of tracheostomy in minimizing post-intensive care unit syndrome and humanistic concerns with tracheostomy. Can you please discuss those? Yes. Um, early tracheostomy could potentially decrease the duration of sedation, and I think we, um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Cagino, led that um, research, and therefore also intubation uh, time and ICU stay. All these leads to um, the patient to be more aware, more, sorry, more aware, awake, and able to communicate and participate actively in his own recovery. All these factors again lead to the decrease of the severity of post-intubation, sorry, post-intensive care unit syndrome. Most of us, um, as healthcare workers during the pandemic, um, have endured a heavy, very emotional toll when taking care of patients with COVID. The severity and acuity of these patients led, unfortunately, I think, to develop certain um, resilience and toughness when taking care of them. I, I think as well that uh, when you intubate a patient, the whole mechanical ventilation paraphernalia that you have with them, um, meaning the endotracheal tube, the NG tubes, all the tapes, et cetera, leads to even more um, kind of a sense of detachment from the nurse, physician, or the respiratory therapies when caring for those patients. I believe strongly that, again, there is no more humanizing thing for any healthcare worker to give a human face um, to a severely ill patient. This leads to more compassion, gives dignity to the patient, and also a desire to work harder for the recovery of those patients. I personally, every time that I do a tracheostomy on a COVID patient, I pronounce the word sawubona at the end of the case, which means I see you and you're important to me and I value you. And Dr. Lamb, how do you respond to Dr. De Cardenas' view that early tracheostomy may decrease the burden of post-intensive care unit syndrome? Well, I think, again, when we think about post-intensive care unit syndrome, it is a known risk factor uh, with prolonged ICU stays, prolonged mechanical ventilation. Uh, I think the challenge here is that we, you know, I think with COVID, there's a COVID syndrome. There's a lot of other things besides just the, the placement or the presence of tracheostomy um, that weighs into that uh, alone. There's other comorbidities that sometimes dictate how long a patient requires mechanical ventilator, uh, irrespective of an endotracheal tube or tracheostomy. I think we, we should always be patient-facing we always want to have a, a humanistic approach in our patient care um, thought process and our pathways. But I think as I try to look toward the evidence, I think we have to really be um, earnest in that the data currently is evolving. And, and we don't have clear data that says that early tracheostomy necessarily specifically reduces that risk. Um, it's a hopeful thought, but we don't really know. And I think that it is important to think about just in the day-to-day -day care of these patients, irrespective um, that we 
are always kind of patient-facing and that sort of thing as well. But we, we really don't know. There's not clear evidence that suggests or, or proves that early trach actually leads to that reduction. Dr. Descardenas, what does the evidence say about risk to healthcare workers performing tracheostomy? Is there evidence supporting a higher risk when done before 14 days? Um, the short answer is no. <clears throat> um, I think that there are at least three large studies uh, uh, showing that there is no development of infection amongst healthcare workers. One of them, I think that was the initial one, was the one published by Dr. Luis Angel in New York City, uh, in NYU, taking care of more than 100 COVID trachs. There was no um, <clears throat> mention of any infection among the, the team. Um, this was confirmed also by other papers. Dr. Chow from UPenn, I think that she um, looked at a cohort more around 50 or 60 patients, no evidence of healthcare worker infections. As another British prospective study as well, more than 100 patients, again, no healthcare, work, healthcare worker infections. And Dr. Lam, what have you found regarding the risk to healthcare workers with early versus late intubation or tracheostomy? Yes, I think we have to kind of take a moment to reflect on how much we have learned uh, compared to March 2020 to now, we're thinking March 2021, here we are. You know, the things that we've learned is that we now have a better, clearer path in terms of the peak of infectivity relative to the onset of symptoms. For example, in patients, you know, the the highest peak of infectivity is within the one to five days of symptom onset. And then there's a marked decline in infectivity of a COVID patient on days 10 to 15 and beyond, even though they may be shedding virus that's detectable by testing, it doesn't then equate to infectivity of healthcare workers. But I think those are things that were not clearly known in the beginning. I think what we've learned, though, we've learned that personal protective equipment works and that it's, it's definitely important to use it and to have a team strategy when approaching patients for any potential aerosolizing procedure to remain safe. Um, the thing that we don't know is that there's really not a clear study or set of studies that really demonstrate if a, pay, a healthcare worker is asymptomatic and they're a, the trait team performer, if you will, how do we know um, what an asymptomatic healthcare worker carrier of COVID could, have, could they have impact on all other patients they're providing who are potentially non-COVID? I mean, those are some really interesting questions to ask ourselves that we just don't know. Um, but I think the, the messaging is clearer that based on the things that I've said, the CDC has really highlighted those infectivity changes, which we didn't know in the beginning, which I think is meaningful. And that also leads me to say that we should evolve our practices based on knowledge gained. And as we gather the evidence, let the evidence continue to drive us and help us adapt to those changes. But I think the, the take home here is that we've identified that healthcare workers can safely perform the procedures. And generally speaking, the patients that are being evaluated for tracheostomy are often in that level of decline um, in terms of infectivity at the time that trach is being considered. And Dr. Descardenas, what is your response to the argument that 
delaying tracheostomy avoids exposure of healthcare workers to an aerosol-generating procedure during a period of high infectivity? Yeah, um, I have to agree with all what just Dr. Lam said. And um, indeed, um, airborne particle dissemination during tricks is a real thing. And this has been already confirmed in um, a prior study, I think, coming from Spain, that during tracheostomies, there is evidence of um, aerosol um, airborne particles. Um, however, there is no strong evidence suggesting that this leads to a higher incidence of illness among healthcare workers. And this was one of the major arguments, uh, again, some colleagues claimed in order to defer tracheostomy. Um, I, I would say, and I agree again with Dr. Lamb, that as long as proper safety measures with um, PPE and modified techniques are employed to minimize aerosol generation, this is a safe procedure for healthcare workers. And as she mentioned again, uh, one thing again to emphasize here is that the infectivity of coronavirus is around three to four days after the initial infection, and the traits usually occur um, around 10 days post-intubation. So it could be certainly that the patient has been already too far, too, sorry, two weeks from after the initial infection when the infectivity already has diminished. Now, Dr. Lan, you wrote about the risks of endotracheal intubation versus the risks of tracheostomy in itself. Can you please discuss those? Yes. So when we think about endotracheal intubation, we think that the rate of rise of potential complications in the airway are relative to the number of days with the, the endotracheal tube in place. And just to highlight, you know, the things that we are, get concerned about are the risk of tracheal stenosis and tracheomalacia, laryngeal injury, things of that nature, when we're speaking specifically to the airway itself. But I think we also have to remind ourselves about tracheostomy that Specifically, the things that go, could go along with tracheostomy include stomal, superstomal, cuff, or tracheostomy tube-related structures or strictures relative to those locations or granulation tissue that can um, provide a delayed complication and certainly uh, bleeding, such a bleeding of the airway and delayed scarring uh, that can occur with tracheostomy itself. So any type of instrumentation of the airway is not without its own set of risk and Ultimately, the rate of the risk of either is really based primarily on the duration in which they have to be instrumented in their airway. And the thing that makes it a bit variable, even though we may place a tracheostomy, patients may have um, other reasons that are contributing to their ability to liberate fully from mechanical ventilation. And so we can't really identify or say that the early tracheostomy itself would prevent those um, those things um, from not occurring. I think the other thing that I would highlight is that um, we identified in our um, search a bit about machine learning when we talk about tracheostomy, specifically to COVID patients. And I like to highlight it because it actually highlights that um, they, there was a center who published um, the investigators did an implemented machine learning to determine the optimal timing of trach. Uh, in COVID-19 patients, and they identified by this machine learning based on a number of variables that they identified that between days 13 and 17, um, that there was an emphasis that in the first 12 to 14 days patients with COVID, they either demonstrated successful liberation not requiring tracheostomy or 
they um, did not survive. Now, again, that's early in the pandemic. And as I mentioned earlier, we have to keep in mind that since then, there have been different pathways for managing COVID early on. There have been therapies that were not really tried and true in the beginning. So survival and prognosis was different. And so I think we have to evolve that. But I think that's an interesting timeline that was done with a a number of patient-related variables to help stratify patients in terms of consideration of tracheostomy and potentially lead to timing selection. So, Dr. DeCardenas, Dr. Lamb made the argument that delaying tracheostomy may avoid a procedure that would prove unnecessary, either due to ventilator liberation or patient death, if there was more time before the tracheostomy. What is your response to that? Um, I have to agree with her that we should aim to avoid any kind of unnecessary and rushed tracheostomies, right? And those, we don't want to perform futile procedures. Uh, but one of the problems that we have is the the misconception that uh, those patients with COVID that develop ARDS will need to wait two to three weeks, regardless of their clinical course, to be even considered for tracheostomy. ARDS, as any other disease, is quite variable, and uh, we believe that we should treat we should treat each patient on an individual basis, depending on their clinical course and availability of resources. And Dr. Lam, you also discussed the claim that early tracheostomy leads to faster liberation from mechanical ventilation and the concerns that that claim raised. Can you please review that argument? Yes. I, you know, I think um, a few things that I would, would consider, and again, looking back now at, at more published data that we have now available to us to reference, I will cite um, a pretty comprehensive 18-study meta-analysis systematic review of the literature of over 3,234 COVID-19 patients, and it really demonstrated that only 5.2% of those received tracheostomies that were performed within seven days, quote-unquote, early tracheostomy. 21% were performed between days 8 and 13, while the vast majority, um, 71%, were undergoing tracheostomy approximately around day 14 or so. And this did not reveal that the benefit of early tracheostomy in terms of duration of mechanical ventilation or time to decannulation, nor did it um, nor was late tracheostomy associated with an increased mortality. So I think that's interesting to to look at that and consider. I do think things do need to be individualized. I think we all know that that not all patients are the same. There's many variables that we must at the bedside consider. The other interesting thing I would mention is that, you know, during these surges in these high-capacity institutions where resources were being challenged not only by personnel but by supply and mechanical ventilators and beds and all those things, um, when, you, when, had a, when you had a patient undergo tracheostomy, you have to look about where does that patient go once they have undergone their tracheostomy whether they um, need a ventilator or not. And oftentimes in the the U.S., it's going to a long-term acute care center, LTAC. And if you look at the the number of LTACs that are actually in existence, pre-COVID, it's under 400. And very quickly, even those resources were outstripped 
due to that vast volume of patients. And we would note unprecedented numbers of tracheostomy patients beyond normal, three and four times that of normal uh, capacity, and in some cases, maybe even more. So I think that while in theory, the intention was also to help to stratify resources in a responsible way in a crisis, um, that this was still challenging and, di and it didn't necessarily solve that problem because there were dual issues that were being considered patient-facing, patient care, resource allocation, healthcare worker preservation. And Dr. De Cardenas, how do you respond to the argument that there's a lack of uniform evidence that early tracheostomy does result in a faster ICU discharge or lower mortality? Um, the data is quite nebulous about that. Um, and there is conflicting um, um, evidence because the ICU length of a stay depends on, as Dr. Lam mentioned, hospital resources, operational efficiency, and a lot of coordination, right, to transfer one patient from one one place to another. In regards to mortality in COVID trachs, um, there is a nice letter that I would like to mention as well from Dr. Mesolella from Italy, mentioning that the majority of the trachs in Italy early during the um, surge of the pandemic were performed between seven to eight days, days post-admission. And there was no benefit of doing it earlier. But these, um, Dr. Mesolella acknowledges that this might be due to the fact that those patients had uh, multiple multiple comorbidities, and um, those poor patient outcomes might be the, the, the reflect of the scarcity of the resources that they have and the severity of the illness of those patients. Dr. Lam, you also mentioned logistical concerns with tracheostomy aftercare and discharge planning. Can you please discuss those for our listeners? Sure. As I mentioned before, just having physical resources and, and LTACs for these patients to go to in the United States specifically, I, I can speak to that, often challenging. Often in the beginning, um, there were not enough LTAC beds to accommodate these patients. And so what would often happen, that there would be in institution in the primary hospitals, uh, wards of covid trait patients trying to standardize their care plan. And you have to remember in the pandemic surge at the, at the peak of it, we had many volunteers who were non-critical care and not as familiar with general tracheostomy care, let alone uh, being able to troubleshoot, to plan for uh, downsizing to decannulation in a timely way. So logistically, you have to mobilize and train and build redundancy among the respiratory therapist, the inpatient hospitalist, the volunteers who have been taken out of their usual routine into critical care settings and inpatient settings, and find pathways that can be activated and mobilized quite quickly, and education can be dispersed and build in that redundancy. And that really becomes a challenge. It certainly can be met but there has to be very, very specific intention and weekly huddles and reassessing what's working, what's not working, making sure everyone has a checklist, if you will, to move these patients 
appropriately forward in their care path so that there's not any unnecessary delay in downsizing to decannulation, for example, when a patient is recovering, um, regardless of where they are physically located. And Dr. De Cardenas, what is your rebuttal to the challenges raised in tracheostomy aftercare and discharge planning? Let me start by saying that placing a tracheostomy is a a big team responsibility, and it should not be done if there are no plans for follow-up, downsizing, decannulation, or even expertise to manage these complications that could occur. Um, personally, I, the first thing that I have in my mind when I place one is when I can remove it, right? And uh, locally, in our institution, we have established a dedicated log and team that uh, follow those patients on the floors or whatever unit they are, uh, once those those patients are tolerating tricolor for at least 24 hours, um, we expedite downsizing. And in some cases, we go directly even to uh, capping. Um, and, and there is no more satisfying emotion that uh, when we see a patient who who has already gone through a lot, to be able to hear his own or her own voice it, and to communicate. But also, um, I think that rapid or expedited um, process of decannulation and removal of tricks are extremely important because that also decreases the burden that you are imposing on your um, local institution as well as the community, right? Um, the patient will not have a hole anymore and will be able to breathe on his own. So as we finish up our discussion, can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you've learned from this discussion what do you want them to take away from this podcast? Dr. De Cardenas? Uh, I'll be very brief here. And um, again, I want to thank um, to everyone for and their time and, and the invitation. Um, I do think that um, our suggestion is based that, um, um, that those well-established principles regarding indications and candidacy for tracheostomy should be, still be followed by the clinicians and should take precedence over considerations of timing. If the patient requires a tracheostomy, this should not be delayed. And Dr. Lamb. I would also like to thank the, the panel and also Dr. Dave Cardenas for this uh, thoughtful discussion and also our counterpoint and point colleagues who helped uh, work um, on both of the, the papers. I think what, I, what we've con what I take home and what I'd like for our listeners to take home is that truly that we are, we are learning a tremendous amount. And I think more than any other viral pandemic, we are collecting the data that will serve on reserve for us for future um, benefit. And I think the things that I would highlight is that we really need to move toward, again, reminding to be multifaceted, multidisciplinary team approach to managing the patients, be very patient-facing. And I would suggest that maybe the there may be individual circumstances, but by and large, consideration for and maybe a more intermediate group where trach tracheostomies are performed in this patient population. It certainly, you know, day 10 to 14, we would clearly state that we would not recommend waiting 21 days. I think that's a real lesson learned is that we can certainly perform tracheostomy earlier than that and identifying that balance between protecting our healthcare workers but also providing the 
best care for patients, for best outcomes, and then follow these outcomes over time to assess. But I think there needs to be a tiered approach, patient-facing algorithms that allow us to be thoughtful and maybe not so absolute, but I think we can say PPE works, healthcare workers can perform these procedures safely, that patients, certain patients and certain populations do truly benefit from tracheostomy. And I think we've clearly learned that we can do tracheostomies earlier, certainly earlier than 21 days. Great. Well, I'd like to offer a big thank you to Dr. De Cardenas and Dr. Lamb for a great conversation on an important topic. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.